Dear Father in heaven, Lord, we want to thank you and praise you for your grace that you have extended again to us. Uh, we are not worthy in any way, shape, or form. And you've given us this time in the mountains to commune with you and to talk with you, to find our healing and our encouragement and our strength, to have our rebukes. And we know, Lord, that because you are our friend, you rebuke us and you chasten us. And I ask, Father, that as we study this morning, you give us wisdom beyond our years. That we may apply knowledge and live a life that is pleasing to you. We thank you for your love and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin with uh, our seminar theme song. Ecclesiastes 1.9, are you ready? You should know it by now. Ecclesiastes 1 in verse 9. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. The thing that hath been, it is that which shall be. So this morning we're going to talk about as it was in the days of Jesus. I have here on the screen the judgment is set. Same idea, same principle. We're going to go through this process. And I want you to begin with reading with me in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm sorry, the book of Psalms. Psalms, the 37th chapter. In verse 28. Psalms, the 37th division, verse, beginning at verse number 28. Notice here what the Bible says in Psalms 37 and verse 28. The Bible says, for the Lord loveth judgment. What does the Lord love? For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. Notice the next part. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous speaketh wisdom, and his tongue talketh of what? I wonder. What does that mean? Whenever I've studied with our people, the Advent people, when we talk about this idea of judgment, it seems to bring fear and trepidation into the hearts of the people of God. It seems to bring this ominous feeling that if judgment is taking place, then I'm not ready. But you must understand the purpose of judgment and the heart of God towards judgment. What does the Bible say God's heart towards judgment is? What does it say that he is? He loves it. Is that right? Now, if God loves judgment, shouldn't you and I love judgment? See, the reason why we don't love judgment is because we don't understand the benefit that judgment gives to God's people. Did you hear what I said? We don't understand the benefit. Again, let's read it. Just read it more carefully. Look again at verse 28. For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell therein forever. The mouth of the righteous shall speak wisdom and his tongue talketh of judgment. And what else is on their tongue? The law of his God is where? So if he's talking about judgment and the law of God is in his heart, 
Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? Do you see the idea? That if the heart is written, if God's righteousness is written in the heart of God's people, then they will anticipate and look forward to speaking about judgment. But wait, there's more. Keep reading. The, the law of the Lord God is in his heart, and none of his steps shall what? Now remember, we read that in Psalm 73. My steps have well nigh slipped until, until what? I went into the sanctuary and understood their end. There's something about the sanctuary, the law, and judgment that allows the people of God to be at rest and total trust in what he is doing in these last days. In fact, I'm going to tell you something. You may or may or may not believe me, but you know that first angel's message? You were familiar with that first angel? And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having what? The everlasting gospel, the preacher to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with what kind of voice? Loud voice, fear God, give glory to him for the hour of what? His judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth the seas and the fountains of waters. Why is it then that when we say we preach the gospel, we leave judgment out as if judgment is not part of the gospel? Did you hear what I said? Judgment becomes the center of the gospel because when he sits in judgment, he's going to rebuke all that have been causing you problems. Are you listening to what I'm saying? All right, let's go a little further. I wanted you to look at this word. You ever seen this word before? Daniel's name. What does Daniel's name mean? God is my judge. Please keep that in mind. The whole book of Daniel, wonderful. I have a whole study, just went chapter after chapter after chapter, beautiful study in the book of Daniel. But Daniel means God is my judge. Daniel is able to stand before kings because he's already stood before the king of the universe. Do you understand the idea? So Daniel means God is my judge. That's what his name means. Keep it in mind because we're going to study right now. God is my judge. Now we're going to go to the book of Haggai or Haggai. Go to the book of Haggai. It's a small little book, seldom studied. We're going to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2. And we're going to study, so please put your thinking caps solidly on. Haggai chapter 2, and we're going to begin at verse number 9. Haggai chapter 2, and we're beginning at verse number 9. Watch carefully. It says, the glory of this latter house. Latter meaning the second one. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than that of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place, in what place? In what place? Talk to me. In what place? In the latter house. Very good. In the latter house, in this place, will I give peace saith the Lord of hosts. So there's the former house, there's Solomon's temple, and then you have this latter house. And when you look at this latter house, I wonder how the people of God felt when they saw this latter house. Look at verse number three. Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as what? So when you see the latter house, the second house, the second house does not have that same appeal as the first house. Now you think about that first house. You remember what happened at that first house, right? That first house when the temple was being built. In fact, go there. Go to 2 Chronicles. 
Go, go to 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Don't lose Haggai, though. Keep your hand right there in Haggai. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. And watch this, friends. 2 Chronicles chapter 5. Look at verse number 1. The Bible says, Thus all the work that Solomon made for the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in all things that David his father had dedicated, and the silver and the gold and all the instruments put he among the treasures of the house of God. So the temple of the house of God is what? Finished. Keep it in mind. The house is finished. Jump down to verse 13. 13, same chapter. It says, It came even to pass as the trumpeters and singers were as one to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with trumpets and cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, for he is good for his mercy endure forever, that then the house, the what? The house was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord. Look at verse 14. So that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Now, let me ask you a question again. We're just thinking Bible students here. What is the work of the priest? What does he do in the, in the, in the temple or in the, in the house of God? What does he do? He ministers. He offers gifts and sacrifices. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1 and 2. He does a work in there, but if he's not ministering in the temple, gifts and sacrifices aren't being offered. Are you paying attention? Now, again, don't leave Haggai. We're going to leave Second Chronicles. Go to Second Chronicles chapter 7. Again, when they were finished, the house was built. The Spirit of God moved into the house. Listen to me, family. Second Chronicles 7 verse 1, the Bible says, now when Solomon had made an end of praying, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and sacrifices and the glory of the Lord filled the house. Are you paying attention? When the house was finished being built, everything to its proper specification, God now honors the temple with his presence. And no one is able to minister in that temple. Are you following so far? All right. Exodus chapter 40. Go to Exodus chapter 40. Exodus chapter 40. Notice here what the Bible says in Exodus chapter 40. Because we see this in Solomon's temple. I wonder if we see it anywhere else. Exodus chapter 40 and beginning at verse 32. Notice here what the Bible says. Exodus 40 and verse 32. The Bible says. When they went into the tent of the congregation, and when they came near unto the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses. And he reared up the court round about the tabernacle and the altar, and set up the hanging of the court gate. So Moses did what? He finished the work. Now watch what happens when he finishes the work. Just like in Solomon's temple, watch what happens. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord did what? Interesting. So when the tent structure, when the building was finished being built exactly how God said to build it, then God honored the temple with his presence. Are you paying attention? 
Don't you in your home want God's presence to be in your home? Is that right? That's what I want. I, I desire it every day. Whenever I see the enemy creeping in, I pray, Father, please raise up a standard around my home. Protect my wife. Protect my child. Lord, give me wisdom that I may lead my home correctly. For I want your presence in my house. You follow the idea? Now, I'm going to show you one last parallel before I get right back to the main point of what I want to present. Go to Revelation, the 15th chapter. And remember now, when the presence of God filled the house, there was no more intercession by the priests. Listen to me. When the presence, when the temple was finished, built the way God said for it to be built, there was no more work that the priest could do for the presence of God filled the house. No priest could enter in. Revelation 15, verse 5. Notice here what the Bible says. It says, and after that I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was open. And the seven angels came out of the temple, having the seven plagues clothed in pure and white linen, having their breasts girded with golden girdles. And one of the four beasts gave unto the seven angels seven golden vows full of the wrath of God, which liveth forever and ever. And the temple was filled with what? With smoke from the glory of who? And from his power, and no man was able to enter into the what? Temple. temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels was fulfilled. So we see in the Old Testament a type, a type of when the temple was finished, everything was in the specification, God's presence entered, no man could enter into that temple. And now we see in Revelation chapter 15 that in the last days, the same thing will take place. There's going to be a completion of the work. God is going to finish the work. Are you listening to what I'm saying? Go back now to Haggai. Hope you haven't lost that place. I lost it. Back to Haggai, chapter 2. Haggai, chapter 2. And looking at verse number 3. Who was left among you that saw this house in her first glory? The glory when God's presence entered it. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? So remember, the latter house is going to be greater than the former house. Look at verse number 7 now. Verse 7 says, And I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come. And I will fill this house with what? Are you paying attention? And I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. So the latter house is going to be greater than the former house because the latter house will have the desire of nations entering. Who's the desire of nations? Jesus. You know that book, Desire of Ages? I, I used to wonder where she got that title from. She got it from right here. Haggai chapter 2, verse 7. The desire of nations, the desire of ages is entering into the temple. And how did he enter in? Go back to John chapter 1. Again, one of my, this is, I, it has to be my favorite chapter, one of my favorite chapters to teach from. And John chapter 1, look at John chapter 1 now. John chapter 1. John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, watch carefully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was? The same was the beginning with God. All things were made by Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended in night not. Verse 14. And the word was made what? And dwelt. Well, doesn't that sound like tabernacle? He pitched his tent among us. He dwelt among us, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and what? Now, there's two aspects to God's character here highlighted. Glory consists of two major aspects. Tell me, based on what you just read there, what would be the two major aspects of God's glory? Grace and truth. Now, listen, listen to me. Any man that teaches only truth is not teaching the full character and person of Jesus. Did you hear what I said? And any man that only teaches about grace and doesn't teach about truth is not teaching about the full character of who God is. There must be a perfect blending of grace and what? If they're not blended together, friends, you are not understanding and seeing the perfect character and will of God. Now, listen to me carefully. There is a reason, there is a science as to why these two must be blended together. If these two are not blended together, you and I are still stuck in our sins. Go to, go, go, go to Proverbs, the 16th chapter. Keep your hand in John, please. Go to Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, Proverbs, the 16th chapter. And we're looking at verse number six. If these two are not blended perfectly together, friends, we are still in our sins. Proverbs 16 and verse 6, notice here what the Bible says. It says, by mercy and, and what? So they both must be together. By mercy and truth, iniquity is what? Purge. Now, you and I believe wholeheartedly that we're living in the, in the day of atonement. And in the day of atonement, we believe with all our hearts that Jesus is in the most holy place and he is in the most holy place purging the sanctuary from sin. Now, is he only worried about some book in heaven? Tell me something. Is he only worried about a book in heaven and purging sin? No, he's worried about you and me. Is that right? So as he's purging books in heaven, he wants to purge hearts down here. Mercy and truth blended together. I tell you what, I thought about this a whole lot. Uh, let's say you had a sick dog over there in the corner. The dog is emaciated. It can't move. You know the truth. If that dog doesn't eat, it's going to die. Is that right? That's the truth. That's no question about it. If the dog doesn't eat, it's going to die. So you have the truth. And you go over to the dog and say, dog, eat. Well, what's that going to do for the dog? Ain't going to do nothing with the dog. The dog's going to sit there and say, I want to, but I can't. And this is what we do with souls, friends. We go to souls and say, you know you ain't supposed to do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. And they're saying, I know, but I can't help it. I know, but I'm frustrated. My life is all messed up. I know I'm not supposed to do this, but I don't have any hope. I don't understand how to be free. So you know what the best thing to do? The dog's over there sick. You know the truth. You take the dog some food. Is that right? You're not hearing me. You take some that dog food and you take that dog water and you walk over to the dog and you say to the dog gently, I can't make you eat this doggy. Here, smell it. Huh? So I have a dog. Her name is uh, Maggie. She's new to the family. And Maggie, uh, there's a certain food she doesn't like. I don't care if you take that food over to her and try to help her to smell it. Or she just doesn't like that type of food. So we got to figure out some other way to get her some good food. Is that right? Are you listening to me? 
Grace and truth must be blended perfectly together. You can't just tell somebody to drink water. You must bring them the water and you must demonstrate how good that water has been to you. Are you listening to me? Is by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. You can't remove sin from somebody if you don't have both blended together. And the only one that does it perfectly, his name is who? Are you hearing me, friends? He's the only one that has done it perfectly, perfectly in every aspect of who he is, in the way he walked, the way he talked, the way he touched, the way he sang, the way he held children. He did it perfectly. So who should you take to him if, you, if he did it perfectly? Should you take yourself to them? No, no, no. You don't take yourself. No, no, no. You take Jesus. You let Jesus. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth where? Grace and truth perfectly blended together. If they are not both there, then you are still in your sins. Now, Jesus, back to John, back to John, back to John, chapter one. Again, the glory of God is now in the temple. In John chapter 1, look at verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath what? So there's something about the Son being in the bosom. What does that idea of bosom indicate? That there's a what? There's a closeness, there's a nearness, there's a relation, an intimate relationship that this son has that you and I don't have the privilege of having off top. We need to go through the son. Now, with this idea in mind, remember, the second house is going to be greater than the first house because the desire of ages or the desire of nations is entering into this house. He is the manifestation of God's person and his character. All the fullness of the Godhead is in this one person, Jesus. Keep it in mind. Now, we're going to eavesdrop on a conversation. I like eavesdropping on Jesus. But you'll notice that as you eavesdrop on Jesus, this particular conversation is going to be pretty intense. Go to Matthew 23, please. In Matthew 23, we're going to start at the 33rd verse. Matthew 23, the 33rd verse. Watch carefully. We're going to start there. The Bible says, ye serpents. Ooh, that's Jesus talking. Ye serpents. Ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? Now, why is Jesus talking to them like that? I, I want to know, why, why would a loving God, the person, the embodiment of grace and truth, why is this God speaking like this? Now, go back up to in Matthew 23. I want you to see a trend because this is the end of his, his talk. But notice what it says in verse 13. It says, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. Tell me something. Who are the scribes, Pharisees, and hypocrites? Who are they? Who are they? They're the spiritual leaders. They're the spiritual representatives of who they say they are the chosen of God, i.e. they are the remnant. Listen to me. Read the verse again. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Look at verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Look at verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Look at 16. Woe unto you, blind guys, which say, Whosoever shall swear against this temple, it is nothing, but whosoever shall swear against the gold of this temple is a debtor. Jump down to verse number 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Look at verse 24. Ye blind guys, 
Look at verse 25. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Look at 26. Thou blind Pharisee. Look at 27. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. Wow, Jesus got a problem. Yeah, he, he has a problem with something. He has a problem with somebody. He has a problem with the people that claim a name and all the nations in the world don't know anything about truth. And the only nation on the planet that has the truth is the Jewish nation. Listen to me. There's no one else in the whole world that has the truth but the Jewish nation. And the Jewish nation, with a pretentious outward conformity to religious norms, but no heart conversion, has now become an eyesore to Jesus. Are you hearing me? Because you think I'm talking about them. I'm not talking about them. Jesus has a problem. Outward conformity to rules without an inward change is mere drudgery and formalism, friends. In fact, Jesus says they have a form of godliness, but they deny what? They deny power. And then the Bible says from such turn away. Don't even hang with them. Think about it. Why be a Christian without power? Why be a Christian without the indwelling of God's spirit? Why persecute yourself? Power is available. Again, Jesus in verse 33 says, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers. And notice he's saying it with tears in his eyes. How can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill, future tense, and crucify. And some of them ye shall scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah, son of Bacchaeus, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, listen to these words, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem. Now you must, when you look at this verse, you must see tears in his eyes as he's saying this. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thee as a, as a what? Even as a hen gathered her chickens under her wings, but you were what? You would not. I'm reminded of a story of a man, had a, he had a barn, and a barn caught on fire. He lost all his animals in that barn. And he walked across, and he saw the mother hen there, charred and burnt up. She kicks the hen, and from underneath that hen comes all these little chickadees. Oh, I would love to gather you under my wings as a mother hen gathers her chickens, but you decided that you wanted your own way. I would have loved to protect you. I would have loved to gather you under my, I would have loved to take care of you. I would have loved to give you the husband that you deserve. I would have loved to give you the wife that you deserve, but you chose your own way. But you would not. Now watch what he says, because these are, these are solemn words that Jesus says in this verse. He says, behold, your house. Whose house? Wait a second. You don't understand. This house was not their house. This was his house. 
But he says, you're doing what you want in this house. So guess what? It's your house. Behold, your house is left unto you what? The glory of God is departed from this place. Now, when you read this passage and you jump down to verse 24, you don't realize the reality of what's really transpired in verse 24. Watch this. And Jesus. Now, who's Jesus? Talk to me. Who's Jesus? He's the son of God. Now, Jesus, use, use what we studied before in John chapter 1. Based on John chapter 1, who's Jesus? The word. Now, Jesus is the word, and he was the manifestation of what? God's what? God's what? His glory. The word made flesh. He was the manifestation of God's glory. So when we see Jesus leaving from the temple, what we see is God's glory departing from the temple. Are you paying attention? God's presence leaving the temple. Any home that does not have Jesus in it is already desolate. You saw Jerusalem. When he said it, the temple was still standing. Is that right? For, se for several years afterwards, 70-something 70 years afterwards, the temple still did what it would normally do. It didn't look desolate at that moment. But desolation was coming. Yea, desolation was already there, for Jesus had already left. In fact, notice what the Bible says in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. Look carefully, friends, for we are talking about the, as it was in the days of Jesus. Luke chapter 19. Look at verse 41. Watch carefully. Luke 19, verse 41. Please notice here what the Bible says. The Bible says, And when he was come near, he beheld the city and did what? This is Jesus crying. He's weeping over the city. Why are you weeping, Jesus? Tell us why you're weeping. Saying, If thou hast known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong to thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side. Now, I don't have time to break this part down per se, but if you go back to Deuteronomy and you look at the chapter Blessings and Curses, you'll see that this is a repetitive uh, application. This happened before with the destruction of Jerusalem and Solomon's temple. This happens now again, what's going to happen now with the destruction of this temple. Yea, the same principle is going to happen near the close of earth's history and the close of probation for God's church. Are you listening to me, friends? Notice what the Bible says. And when he has come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, If thou hast known even thou at least in this thy day the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thine eyes, for the day shall come upon thee, that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, compass thee round on every side, and keep thee in it on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground. Listen carefully. And thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Why? Tell me why, Jesus. Because. Because what? Tell me why. Tell me what's the verse say. Because what? Because they did not know the time of their what? They didn't know the time? There's a particular time that he was going to come visit? They didn't know the time of the visitation. And as I studied this verse, the Lord said, Andre, notice the key word, time. Time? He said, yes, Andre, time. He saw, and as I'm studying, the Lord said, Andre, they don't understand. And I, when he said they, he's talking about the church at large. Andre, they don't understand what this means. 
So, Jesus weeps. They didn't know the time. Now listen, this prophecy is one of the most neglected prophecies in all the Bible, even by those who claim to be remnant. This is the most beautiful prophecy in Scripture. It is the anchor prophecy of all prophecies. I challenge you to go through each point in this prophecy, not right now, but in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, you go through each one of those points. This is the only prophecy that pinpoints the exact arrival of the Messiah. It exactly anchors the arrival of the remnant in the last days. This is the prophecy of all prophecies. Now remember, it says they did not know the what? The time of their visitation. I wonder what the time of visitation is. The time of visitation is right there. See that? 27 A.D., 34 A.D. They didn't know the time when he was going to come and be amongst his people. When I say they didn't know the time, in other words, what I'm saying is this. If the God of the universe has said and declared, I'm going to come visit GYC Southwest 2012, but I'm going to be on the campgrounds every morning at 6 a.m. And you come here at 7 would you come and receive the blessing that you were, were supposed to receive? No. Absolutely not. If the God of the universe is walking up and down, and listen to me, he is walking up and down these grounds right now. I tell you the truth, we have not yet reached the purpose of this meeting as yet. Did you hear what I said? The tent has not yet shaken. The hearts and minds of God's people have not yet been completely and totally filled. The sanctuary in heaven is still some distant thought, some distant idea. We have not yet come together in complete unity. The Holy Spirit has not come down with great power yet. You've been moved so far. That's fine. I want more. Do you hear what I'm saying? Amen. You're satisfied. I'm not satisfied. We're told that at every meeting like this, is the opportunity for the outpouring of God's spirit. Amen. Outpouring. What does outpouring mean? Does it mean a little drizzle? It means an outpouring. It means an overflooding. It means you should be getting drenched. Hey, it's a new day. Is that right? It's a new day. It's a new day. They didn't know the time of their visitation. And because they did not know the time, their house was completely broken down and left desolate. Now watch this. Now let's go back, and, let's go back a little bit. Luke 21, 20. Go back to Luke 21. We're looking at verse 20. Luke 21. Luke 21 and verse 20. Notice what the Bible says in Luke 21, verse 20. The Bible says, And when ye shall see Jerusalem... Come past with what? Then know that the desolation thereof is. So when Jerusalem is surrounded by enemy forces, know that destruction is not far behind. Go to Matthew 24, verse 15. Watch this now. Matthew 24, verse 15. Notice here what the Bible says. 
Matthew 24, verse 15. The Bible says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand where? Is, that, is abomination and desolation supposed to stand in the holy place? Is that where it's supposed to be? It's not supposed to be there, but when you see an abomination in the house, notice what the Bible says. Spoken of by Daniel the prophet, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee where? And that's so significant. We'll get there in a moment. So when you see the armies come past Jerusalem, go to Daniel 8, 9, please. Daniel 8, 9. We're studying. We're studying right now. When you see the abomination stand in the holy place, whoso read of let him understand. When you see the city surrounded by armies, know that the desolation is nigh. Daniel 8, verse 9. Notice here what the Bible says. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward what? Pleasant land. Look at verse 20. 20 to 24, the ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia. The great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. Talking about the kingdom of Greece. Now talking about the kingdom of Rome, verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, verse 24, and his power shall be mighty, but not by his own power, and he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper and practice and do what? Destroy who? The mighty, the mighty and holy people. Now, that's an oxymoron because the mighty and holy people should not be destroyed. The mighty and holy people should not be conquered. There's, there's something transpiring here. There's a reason why the people of God have been weakened. I'm going a little further. Go to Daniel 9.26, please. Watch this. Daniel 9.26 and 27. And I wish I could put it on the screen and show you exactly what the verses are doing, but we'll just do it from here. It says, and after three score and two weeks shall Messiah be cut off, but not for himself. What does that mean? He's not cut off for himself. What does that mean? He's died, he's died for us. Is that right? Now watch, and the people of the prince shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary, and the end thereof shall be with the flood, and unto the end of the war, desolations, plural, are determined. Verse 27, and he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and oblation to cease, and for the overspreading, listen carefully, and for the overspreading of abomination, he shall make it what? So because of abominations, he's going to make it desolate. Interesting. Even until the consummation and that determined shall be poured upon the desolator. Now watch. Here on the screen I have a picture for you. This is the Middle Eastern territories. And this is a, the path that the Babylonians took the children of Israel um, to Babylon, about a 999-mile journey. Jerusalem, Babylon, all right? Almost 1,000 miles. 
We call the Babylonian kingdom, Jeremiah 25, verse 9, we call that kingdom the king of the north, all right? And then here, we call Jerusalem, this area, that land section there, we call it the pleasant land. Are you following? This was what happened in the destruction of Solomon's temple. Now, I'm going to do another map for you. I want you to pay attention and follow along. In this map, we have the same picture, but just showing more of the western part of the European area and, and Africa. Now, here is the city of Rome. Here is Jerusalem. This is called, in Scripture, pagan Rome, I would equate to the northern power. In fact, if you look at Daniel 8, verse 9, it says it waxes towards the east and towards the south and towards the pleasant land. So we know that the power comes from the northwest. Northwest. So he's the king of the north. He comes down to Jerusalem and destroys Jerusalem in A.D. 70. We call this the pleasant land. I want you to think with me right now. Jesus says, Jesus says that there is an issue that when you see the abomination of desolation set up and these armies surround Jerusalem, know that the desolation is nigh. Anybody read the first chapter in the Great Controversy? When you read that chapter, didn't your heart kind of bleed for the people? And then when she gets down to the end and she talks about how the armies were, how the armies had surrounded Jerusalem and how the armies didn't even want to come and destroy the people. And it was some radical Adventist in there throwing something out. And when they threw it out, they came in with a firebrand, stuck it in the, in the cedar part of the building, and the whole building caught on fire. And when the Roman soldiers saw all the gold and all, the fi- all that stuff happening, they said, okay. And they began to break down the walls and get all the gold so that not one stone was left upon another. Not one. Peter Prophecy says that an angel from heaven came and made sure that not one stone was left there to make sure the prophecy was fulfilled. I think about this now. I'm going to pass some of this. Let me pass this. There's a lot of stuff here. Go to Daniel 9, 24, please. Remember, the latter temple is going to be greater than the former temple. The, the desire of ages, the desire of nations is entering in. The people do not recognize the time of their visitation. There's something that they're supposed to do before he comes. And look at what the Bible says. Daniel 9, 24. Seventy weeks are determined upon thy people. And upon thy holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and the prophecy, and to do what? Now, what I did was I was praying and asking God, what is this talking about? And he impressed my mind. And I I tell you the truth, I don't know Greek or Hebrew. But when you go back and you look at it in the Hebrew, there's actually a poetic Layout in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And these phrases, finish the transgression and make an end of sin, is saying the same thing in a different way. So I said, Lord, what is it that you're trying to say? The issue was stop sinning. They had 70 weeks to stop rebelling against God. Bottom line, finish the transgression, make an end of sins. Then it says make reconciliation for iniquity and bring in everlasting righteousness. So the Lord said one word. Righteousness. Righteousness. The people don't just stop sinning. You see that chair right there, that chair? The chair doesn't sin. Is that right? The pole doesn't sin. But to live righteously is to do that which is pleasing and helpful and honorable to God. Does that make sense? So they're supposed to stop sinning 
live righteously. And the last part says, seal up the vision and prophecy and anoint the most holy. Do you understand what they're supposed to do? When Jesus came on the scene, they were supposed to welcome him in. You are the king of Jerusalem. You are the king of the people. And Jesus would not have had to go to Calvary. Listen to me. Jesus would not have been stuck on a tree. Jesus would have just went. When it was time, he would have went, laid down, and died. Y'all not listening to me right now. The tree, the cross, was an evil invention of Satan to stop Jesus from dying. You're not, you're not listening. The cross was designed to put so much pain on Jesus that he would stop and come down from the cross. Don't die for these people. The people were not supposed to receive salvation according to Lucifer. Jesus would have died anyway. You know, in Matthew 20, Matthew 20, is it Luke, Matthew 23, he's already, he's already, Matthew 26, the Bible says that he's already dying. My soul is exceeding sorrowful even unto what? He's already dying. The sins of the world are already being put on him. He's going to die anyway without a cross. But the cross is designed to take him down. The same thing the Sunday law is designed to do. Y'all not listening to me right now. The Sunday law is designed to stop you from being faithful to Jesus. When this crisis comes, it will come, and the Bible says about the 144,000, they follow the Lamb where? Wherever he goes, even unto death, they'll go. The crisis is coming. Well, when the crisis comes, what will take place? What will we have to have stopped doing? We'll have to stop sinning. Did you hear what I said? We will have to start living righteously, and we will have anointed Jesus as our king. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is what? Give him glory. How can you give glory if you don't have glory? Jesus, the Bible says they did not know the time of their visitation. I tell you something, I'm thinking about this. My mind begins to, 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 to focus on it. And then this thought came to my mind one day. Go with me now. Revelation. Revelation. I'm going to bypass this. Thank you. Revelation chapter 3. You know this passage, but you may have not understood it like, I, like we were about to understand it right now. I'll give you all the foundation for this one point. Revelation chapter 3. Watch carefully what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 14. And unto the angel of the church of Laodicea writes, question, what does Laodicea mean? No, Laodicea does not mean a sleeping people. Laodicea means a people judged. Remember we started out, God loves what? God loves judgment. God loves it. We get to Laodicea and everybody's like, I don't want to be Laodicea. I want to be Philadelphia. I want to be Smyrna. No, no, no. You want to be Laodicea. You just don't want to be lukewarm in Laodicea. You want to be on fire in Laodicea. You want to be one that God judges in favor of. The Bible says in Daniel chapter, chapter 7, and the time came 
that judgment was given in favor of the saints. Do you understand what that means? Man, I'm telling you, when we get to that position as a people and love what Jesus loves, you will receive such a wonderful blessing. Now watch this now. Laodicea means a people judge. And, and to the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these things say of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So then because thou art what? Lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth because thou sayest I am rich and increased in goods and have need of what? Listen to that verse. Does not sound like a Pharisee to you? Does not sound like a superficial conservative to you? Does not sound like a liberal to you? It sounds like everybody without Jesus to me. You are rich and increasing goods. I don't need anything. And thou knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and what? Now, if I stood up here naked, you would think I was crazy. Wouldn't you think that? This is what the verse is saying. The verse is saying, you are crazy. Your mind is not where God's mind would have it. You are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Do you believe what the Bible says about Laodicea? Because if you believe it, then you can get help. If you don't believe it, there's no hope for you. The Bible says we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And notice what else it says. And verse 18, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire. Mm. That thou mayest be rich in white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, and that the shame, the shame of what? The shame of thy nakedness do not appear and anoint thine eyes with eyesal that thou mayest see. What, listen to what's happening here. The message that's come to Laodicea is telling Laodicea, you are in a position of vulnerability. You are, not, you are in a position in which there's going to be a time where you're going to be exposed. Please put some clothes on. Please. In fact, hold your finger right here. I'm going to show you. Go to Re Revelation 16. Go to Revelation 16. Look at verse 15. There's a time when nakedness will be exposed. Revelation 16, 15. Notice here what the Bible says. It says, Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his what? Lest he walk naked and they what? Do you see the context of this? The context of this is under the seven last plagues. The context of this is when the sanctuary is closed. The context of this is when probation has closed and there is no more salvific work for mankind. We're close. I say put some clothes on. What do you say? Amen. Put some clothes on. We're back to Revelation chapter six. I mean, chapter three. Watch this now. Verse 19 says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and what? Question. You go to your own house. You have a key, right? Put the key in the door. You unlock the door. You walk right into your house. Is that right? Yes. You don't knock on your door. Are you paying attention? Yes. You don't knock on your door. 
When you go to your house, you take your key, you open that door, you walk into that house because you own that house. The only one that knocks on the door is a what? Or a visitor. Listen to me. The only one that knocks on the door is a visitor. Remember, they did not know the time of their visitation. Therefore, their house is left unto them what? But now there's a people, a people judged, a people connected with the same time prophecy. A remnant people, an Advent people, a Seventh-day Advent people that don't realize Jesus is knocking at the door. They don't understand the time. They have their religious formality. They have their religious activity. But he's still knocking at the door. I remember reading the Desire of Ages, talking about, the, talking about the Jewish nation. She says, she says, she goes on, she says, they in temple right, in song, and in, in, in worship, in their family worship, they would talk about the coming of the Messiah. But when he came, they did not know him. I read it and I trembled. I said, don't I go to church? Don't I, don't I sing about, oh, we have this hope. Don't we do that? We do all those things. And when Jesus comes to visit, we don't even recognize him. We think it's a game. We come to church, when is he going to be done? He got, he got two minutes left. Can't wait to get out. We want to play games and video games and basketball and football, and we have no conscience of the reality that Jesus is knocking at the door. He says, I want to change my church from the inside out. I want my house clean, and I want to be able to invite people in. I'm challenging you, man, sister. I'm challenging you. I don't want a regular Christian experience. I don't want it. I don't want to be bored stiff at church every week. I don't want it. I don't want a once a week experience. I don't want it. I want the true Christian experience. I want Jesus to reign in every aspect of what I do when I put my food on the table. I want heaven happy. Huh? When I put my clothes on, I want heaven happy. When I go and do ministry, I want heaven happy. I don't want to please men. I want God to know that he has a child on this earth that will usher in the second coming of Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I say, let's stop him from knocking. Let's open the door. Let's open the door. Let's let him in. Let's sup with him. What's that mean? Sup? That means let's have dinner. Let's talk over what's going on. Don't keep him in the kitchen. No, let him go to your bedroom. Is that right? Let him go in that closet. Let him change your shoes. Jesus is about to come. And he will have a people. Don't you want to be part of those children? I want to be a part of that number.
And friends, before you leave this place again, before you leave this mountain, before you leave and go and get distracted by the things of this world, you have the opportunity today, right now, to invite Jesus in to sup with you. How many with me today no longer want Jesus to be a visitor? You want him to live in your house? Let's go to his throne together and ask him for help. And what we're going to do, as I've been impressed just now, if you can grab a partner and you two pray together, and then after a few minutes of prayer, then I'll close. Just turn, turn to your partner right next to you. Pray together, pray for each other. And then I'll close. Father, you've heard our prayer. Come into our hearts. Take us higher and higher on Jacob's ladder, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.